This is an ABC podcast. There, there is no other alternative for a Prime Minister than the rule of law. To Scott Morrison, stop dealing with this as a political problem and start doing the right thing. Not so much a tin air as a wall of concrete. Having children doesn't guarantee a conscience. Women who have put up with this rubbish and this crap for their entire lives. I've had a gutful. I have had an absolute gutful. Welcome to the party room. I'm Patricia Carvelis. I'm the host of RN Drive and also Afternoon Briefing. And I'm Frank Kelly from RN Breakfast. And soon we're going to be joined in the party room by Sarah Martin, the Chief Political Correspondent with Guardian Australia, to talk about the political events this week and about that video. You know the one I'm talking about? Mm. It's a teaching video about consent that somehow focuses in on a milkshake. Go mm. figure. We'll get into all of that with Sarah. But PK, we saw the government do two fairly major pivots this week on the two big issues of climate and the vaccine rollout. The states are on a mission to get the vaccines rolling out more quickly. We talked a little about that last week. They want everything to be a bit looser. This charge has been led, I think it's fair to say, by the New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian. I think we should be far less rigid in how we approach the vaccination rollout. Uh, given we know that uh, there's no issue with anyone over 50 having the AstraZeneca and there are, there, there's quite considerable supply in Australia at the moment, um, that we need to really crack on with it. And when Gladys Berejiklian says we need to be far less rigid, basically the states think that the whole structure, the government's had this structured rollout, remember 1A, 1B, then it'll be 2A. Well, it's not working. 1A and 1B, many people in those sectors have not, no one's come near them with a vaccine, so that hasn't worked. And it's all bogged down. So basically the states just want to go, you know what, open it up, give us every bit of vaccine you've got, and we will get it to the arms of those people who are eligible. Most of our vaccine, PK, will be uh, AstraZeneca. It's rolling off the production line at the CSL factory in Melbourne, we're told. The states say, give us that AstraZeneca. People over 50 can take that safely. We're going to get going with it. Yeah, so they've completely flipped it, flipped the whole concept by pushing the federal government. And to be fair, Scott Morrison has now rebuilt, because he'd already built it last year, but the architecture of this, you know, twice a week meeting structure so that um, they can discuss these issues. They've agreed to changing the structure. So, yeah, AstraZeneca for people over 50. I think it's a really smart course of action if you've got the supply, if you can make it in your own country to, to do as much vaccinating of people in that cohort as you can. And then when it comes to those very limited doses of the Pfizer vaccine, because it is limited, it won't be coming into later, they'll be hopefully preserved for younger frontline workers or people with a disability until we get more supplies after September. And then the Prime Minister says that it'll be like a sprint, right, Fran? So mm. the federal government has agreed to turn things on its head. I mean, they had no choice to go any other way. Uh, the advice had changed. The planning had quite obviously demonstrably failed. The reliance on the GP network was just not good enough. You needed this mass vaccination model for it to work. And they needed the help from the states, as we talked about last week. And now they're getting it. This week we learned, though, just how far behind the rollout is in one particular area that I think matters if you look at just the core numbers of how many lives were lost last year at the peak of the pandemic, and that's in aged care. And for people with disability in particular, Fran, that's that's where the real you know problem is. Oh, yeah. I mean, the numbers that were revealed uh, at a Senate committee, the COVID parliamentary committee sat and uh, got public servants before it and really tried to drill down on 
who's got the vaccine. And what became clear was we don't actually really know. But what we do know, and these statistics are shocking, uh, that just 93 group disability homes have received their first jabs. That's about 1,500 of the 25,000 people who reside in these homes. One firm called On Call employs 1,500 staff in disability homes. It says not one of their staff has been vaccinated. This is shocking. And now there's reports today, uh, PK, that have come separate to that inquiry that only 10% of of the nation's 330,000 aged care workers have been vaccinated. As you say, aged care is where we've had the majority of the deaths, sadly, from this uh, pandemic. Most of the problem was workers bringing the infection into the home, and only 10% of those workers have been vaccinated. Part of the problem there would be, I think, supply, because many of these workers would be under 50, therefore they would need to have the Pfizer vaccine, and we're getting that in sort of dribs and drabs from Pfizer, reliably, but just small numbers at a time. But we are way, way, way behind where the government said we would be on this orderly rollout of 1A. We're not even talking about 1B. 1B is primarily the GPs. And it's not even really their fault because they're screaming mm. for some kind of reliability of supply. You know, I, I had many, many GPs writing in to me on the show this week. Some of them saying, one of them said, we've got 1,200 vaccines sitting in our fridge and no one's coming and they're going off. Another one said, um, you know, I can only get 50 doses a week. I've got a waiting list out to June of people who are over 70 who want it and need it. So, you know, that's been botched. So now we're just going to open it up and get anyone who is over 50 who is eligible heading out to a GP or a mass vaccination hub or a Bunnings car park if that's where it's going to be and getting a jab. Yeah. And we saw obviously from the federal government this week an attempt at not only, you know, reconvening these meetings and trying to get this back on track, but also, and I'm just going to call it for what it is, wanting to look like it's getting it back on track, right? Like the optics matter with such a thing. And we saw a real militarisation as well of the approach of the language, Fran, between this war footing and we saw the announcement of Commodore Eric Young, a naval officer, being brought on board earlier this week to save the vaccination rollout. You know, it seems to me a lot like looking like action man, we've got the military involved, this is the war footing. Now, I'm not suggesting that that this guy, Commodore Eric Young, won't be useful in this project. I think he will be useful to enlist. But having him right next to Grey Hunt, it's all about looking very busy. But at the end of the day, it's about supply, right? Like you need to actually have the supply, particularly Pfizer now we're talking about, to roll it out. It's not just a logistical exercise. It's about supply, and that's certainly what the government wants to tell us. It's all about supply. But there have been logistical gaps, I think. And to be fair, people from the military, uh, and there's good words being said about this Commodore in terms of his experience in organising things, so I think they'll be pretty good at finding out who are the people in the places in the states who have experience at this and getting them on board so that we've got you know a smoother channels of supply that's clearly a problem. It's been a bit chaotic if you get the feedback from the states and the and the GPs. But it's all about, I think you're right, saying we're strong, we've got this under control, we've got the military now, we're really doing what's necessary. And that's a bit of a nationalistic message too because we're trying to, get, the governments want people to feel almost obliged to get a vaccine. It's everybody's choice. It's not mandatory in this country. You don't have to get vaccinated. There is a hesitancy that is worrying governments because people will put off about the chaos of 
about the lack of supply at their GP clinic or if they could even get to a GP clinic. And they're also put off when we got that news about AstraZeneca not being so safe for people under 50. So they want people to feel a bit of a sort of national pride or I've done my bit for the nation. But PK, think about the 2001 election, okay? That was dubbed the car key election. That was after the 9-11 attacks. John Howard came back from Washington, wrapped himself in the flag, had so many pick facts in that election, I lost count, really, mm-hmm. with yeah. soldiers and flags and the rest of it. And we've talked about this before on The Party Room. Scott Morrison likes to take pages out of John Howard's playbook. John Howard was a success story. He won, what was it, four elections mm-hmm. in a row. And um, Scott Morrison's doing that. Here and he's done it before. He did it when he was in charge of immigration and border patrol. Remember, he got we got Operation Sovereign Borders. So you know this is what is happening here. This it's is a about real comfort zone for him, isn't it? It is a comfort zone. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah, he he feels like when he can enlist this kind of um, well militarization, as I say, but you know this kind of national security lens or approach or optics around what he does, the sales job is easier. But I just want to do reflect because I think it's really important on the vaccine hesitancy. It has been growing. We all know it because the health professionals are telling us, but also anecdotally in my own life, you know, so many people are really, really now worried about AstraZeneca. And I do think we have to be thoughtful about the way that we report these one-off cases in relation to blood clotting. Now, I'm not saying they shouldn't be reported. I'm a a journalist. I think things should be reported. But context, context, context. You know, I think we've got to never buy into scare campaigns because this virus is really the scary thing, right? And this virus is so scary that um, we need to always put within the the proper medical context risk-benefit analysis. And that is, I think, sometimes lost as as, as this growth of vaccine hesitancy happens. And I feel it very strongly now that because we are a low-risk country in terms of transmission, that there is... A growing reluctance to vaccinate, and and that yeah. really worries me. Yeah, but if you think about it as a risk benefit, that does make sense because there's not much risk, much risk of getting the virus in Australia. Yeah, people moment. aren't irrational, you right? Know, so it's a it's a rational decision. But the point is, if we want to get back to life as we knew it, or something close to it, if we want to get our borders open, if we want to be able to travel, we are going to need to be vaccinated to the point of at least sort of eighty five, ninety percent. I think is what Gladys Berejiklian told me on breakfast this week. You know, if we want to get to a world where we can travel, we can come back and have home quarantine. We're going to have to have really, really high penetration of vaccination in the community. Should we bring our guest in? Let's do it. (laughs) Sarah Martin from Guardian Australia. Welcome back to the party room. It's been a while. It has been a while. I've been on a maternity leave party. This is great fun. This is like a real party. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun too, though. Congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. Two babies, Sarah. You're killing it back at work. Uh, The double, (laughs) triple, quadruple load. Good luck and um, hold on to your hats. I might not make it through the podcast. No, no, you won't. But but I often find coming to work is the relaxing part of my day. Oh, totally. Yeah, so you'll be right, I reckon. Now, Sarah, (laughs) just quickly on vaccines. Uh, Fran and I Mm. were talking about this before. We were were recording this on Thursday morning. Mm. National Cabinet's going to meet later today for its second meeting of the week and will almost certainly give the green light to the rollout of vaccines to people 50 and over. Do you think the government has got things back on track now? 
Not yet. I don't think so. I think we, I think today is going to be a really important meeting because they really need a, a major reset. One, they need to really nail down the supply issues and get some certainty in that space. They need to nail down the vaccinating of the vulnerable groups because we're still seeing headlines about people in aged care, aged care workers, in disability care, haven't got those jabs yet. Um, so I think today is a really important meeting before they start, you know, becoming slightly more ambitious in terms of trying to... Uh, vaccinate everyone over 50, we really need to nail down those priority groups first. So I think today is going to be really important. If they, if they do successfully reset it, today is going to be the day. We saw, I thought, quite an extraordinary announcement this week, not so much the announcement itself, but who made it. The Victorian government has said it's going to start manufacturing an mRNA vaccine. Well, it's it's going to put some money towards developing that capacity. It'll mm. take at least a year, I think, the acting premier mm. said. Now, the Prime Minister then followed up encouraging other states to do the same. But I just thought, Sarah, shouldn't this be led by the federal government? Shouldn't this be a national strategy, not one led by whichever state thinks it, it might get going? I completely agree with you. I mean, it's really interesting because a year ago you had the Australian Academy of Science when, when everyone, we were still in the process of, of looking at which vaccines might actually work. They were saying, look, we really need to start looking at this capability and having this capability in Australia because it's going to take some time to to set up, as we know. So, um, you know, it, it was brought to the, the Commonwealth's attention way back then. Now we're going to see, I imagine, given people are sort of seeing that there's um, an element of, of, of populism in these types of um, uh, announcements, we're probably going to see a lot of states coming out with similar announcements. Um, surely, if we want to get this right, you need to have some federal leadership here and it's definitely going to need more money. We know that. Um, yeah, and maybe federal... we don't want every state or, or four universities all having mm. a go or whatever it is. Maybe we want one national effort on this. Yeah, Put absolutely. all our money in one basket, so to speak. Well, otherwise we're going to have, uh, I can imagine we'll all be back at National Cabinet in, in 12 months' time <laughs> working out which one's which one's a goer. So I completely agree with you. And, and I actually thought that in Morrison's press conference on Wednesday when he was asked about that, he seemed a little bit miffed because I, I, you know, obviously we know that the federal government is going to do something in this space and I feel like maybe they felt they were a bit pipped at the post. Yeah, I think that's a good analysis. And also, you know, Victoria's been very much leading the agenda on lots of these things, including mass vaccination sites, which mm. now is happening. Happening. So that's there's no doubt a bit of that too. Sarah, let's move on to the other big issue of, well, our generation, but certainly of this week too. The Biden mm. administration leaders summit on climate kicks off tonight, Thursday night. We're recording this Thursday morning and it will continue again on Friday evening. 40 leaders will be attending this virtual summit, including China's president, uh, our prime minister. Already this week, though, We've seen pressure building on the Prime Minister to make a firm 2050 commitment to net zero emissions. He's tried to get ahead of that pressure, announcing an almost $540 million spend on new clean energy projects, including developing four more hydrogen production hubs in regional areas. Is that kind of funding going to give us credibility around the Leaders' Summit table? Is that what, I mean, that's clearly what he's trying to do, but is it going to work? I don't think so. Um, I th it gives him something to say. It gives him something to talk about. But it's really a diversion from the main game here, which is um, targets to reach net zero by 2050, and particularly those short-term targets, which um, it doesn't sound like Australia is going to have, you know, articulate any change in, in that space at all. So, you know, I think this is this is some money on the table which allows him to talk about something and present some action in this space. Um, but really, the pressure on the government is is over these targets. To 
to on, on emissions reductions. So that that's where we where we are under the pump. And this is, I think, where the the second pivot for the PM came in this week. We started at the top of this podcast, Sarah, talking about two key pivots from Scott Morrison. The Prime Minister, well, it sounded to me as I listened to the speech he gave the Business Council uh, of Australia, they had a dinner this week, it seemed to me it almost sort of borrowed the rhetoric from a Labor leader, Anthony Albanese, on renewable energy and climate change and jobs. Um, Mm. Have we got the two major parties basically talking the same language now on a transition to renewables. Oh, and is, I mean, it is, is, that, is that a good thing and is it, is it true? <laughs> well, I mean, I think the politics of this are absolutely fascinating because for the first time in a very long time, you know, since the climate wars kicked off more than a decade ago, you have the coalition going into this, you know, this lead up to the, the next election giving the impression that they're not going to weaponise climate policy in the way they have done for a very long time. And I think it's absolutely fascinating because they're really, you know, he, he's trying to turn around the Queen Mary on this, like in the space of one election cycle. Like, let, let's make no mistake about this. At the last election, Angus Taylor, Scott Morrison, they all stood up and said that Labor's um, emissions policies would be a wrecking ball through the economy. So they are trying to pivot on this massively. I, I think it's a good thing if we're approaching the end of the, the climate wars. But at the moment, we're, all we're seeing is a rhetorical shift. We're not actually mm. seeing any sort of substantial shift in, in policy. And we, you know, we know that this is perilous ground for mm. the coalition because they are not on the same page in their party room. And I, I think it's going to be, it is quite extraordinary what he's attempting to do. And we know that the coalition loses leaders on this issue um, like a whack-a-mole. Um, <laughs> so so uh, you know, if he can pull this off, even with the rhetorical shift, I think that is fairly substantial, but what we don't have is the you know the the, pol- the meat on the bones yet. We don't we don't know whether that's actually going to be backed up by any you know, new targets um, or anything beyond these sort of you know feel good uh, hydrogen carbon capture storage. Yeah, um, you and know, and you talk money. about you know how they lose leaders so easily on this. You're, you're absolutely dead right. I feel like he's still trying to use some kind of language to appease his own side at the Business you Council. Mean the of wine Austra- bars. Yeah, I'm about to go there at the Business <laughs> Council dinner of Australia this week. The Prime Minister, you know, demonstrated he was inching closer to net zero emissions, but he framed it in some pretty divisive language. Here he is. We're not going to achieve net zero in the cafes, dinner parties, and wine bars of our inner cities. Yeah, the wine yeah. I mean, could... <laughs> bars of Carlton is not where you get like, the climate change. Old habits die hard, right? Like I sort of, I think my favourite my favorite uh, follow to this was I think Eliza Barr on Twitter pointing out that under Scott Morrison's electorate office, uh, there is a very fancy little wine bar. And so perhaps, <laughs> perhaps if Scott, Scott Morrison went downstairs, he, he could, they could solve the problem of, of, <laughs> from of a wine bar. emissions That's from an inner city wine bar. Pinot and this, emissions I mean, reduction. I actually found that a really sort of gratuitous sledge, really, and and it's really culture war material. It reminded me of that speech the Prime Minister gave after the last election when he spoke to the Queensland Mining Council and and he talked about you know changing laws so that you know there'd be if you if you if you put in second agitated for secondary boycotts or something could be a law that dealt with you. And he said this. Mm. He said. Um, a new breed of radical activism is on the march, apocalyptic in tone, brooks no compromise, a dogma that pits cities against regional Australia, one that cannot resist sneering at wealth-creating and job-creating industries and the livelihoods of regional Australians. I mean, mm. it's the same it kind of, of mantra, right? So he's, he's mm. trying to change the message about jobs and renewables, but he's using this old culture war language. Why? 
well, maybe that's just a bit of you know red meat to the base, a bit of a bit of a, a bit of a um, you know g'day Matt Cannavan, I still hear you yeah. sort of fella not line. I don't know. I mean, he's still he's still the leader of the coalition party room, and he still has to manage those internals. So I just thought that was a bit of that. Yeah, I think that was a, a lot of kind of trying to appease, but also yeah, it's a <laughs> it's not an easy job, and clearly it's going to be hard to appease the international community with the change in administration in the US and and the pressure from China too and and the you know mm. in fact China and the US actually working on this one but at the mm. same time appease his own party room so it's a it's a lot it's a wild ride yeah, it is a wild ride and it's going to be wild to watch it too I'm I'm mm. a little fatigued by it all I got to be honest now Sarah uh, there's another big issue this week last night when I say last night we're recording a Thursday <coughs> morning so on a Wednesday night we saw the foreign minister Maurice Payne announce that Victoria's Belt and Road deal with China would be cancelled under the Commonwealth's new foreign veto laws. The Chinese embassy and the state-controlled Chinese media have already spoken out about it, unsurprisingly, saying the move is bound to bring further damage to bilateral relations. And already that relationship is is pretty um, much struggling. I mean, you can't get the sort of face-to-face meetings. We know that we've been in the freezer for a long time. So what's the fallout going to look like and why now? Why has the government chosen to do this? Well, it's very interesting, and and this has been on the federal government's radar for some time. Um, we know that this this Belt and Road <clears throat> Memorandum of Understanding was signed by Daniel Andrews back in two thousand and eighteen, um, and it, it is something that is. I mean, we, we, you know, foreign policy is definitely. A, a, a federal issue and should be a federal issue, and I think that these, but the the way that China has been sort of playing um, to various state governments, um, notably Victoria and, and WA, um, with these sorts of agreements, um, I, I think is something that uh, the federal government didn't like and needed, uh, obviously needed to pass legislation to ensure that they could override these sorts of agreements, which they have now done. So it has been a long time in the making, and it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out, particularly in this context, as you say with China and Australia, um, you know, both at loggerheads over over a number of issues. So Payne has said these agreements failed the test in this legislation and she's suggested that it's not not, uh, aimed at China and that there's also agreements with Iran and Syria that are inconsistent with Australia's foreign policy. But look, it's it's certainly very interesting and um, I I think it's, um, well, we'll see what the fallout is um, after today, but um, I, I don't think anyone was surprised that the embassy came out swinging this morning. Yeah, absolutely. And look, Sarah, just before I let you go, we need to talk about that video. The thing, it's a video about consent. It almost blew up the internet this week. Who knew you could learn about consenting to sex through a milkshake? What happens when one person takes action without an agreement? You do, huh? Well, drink it. Drink it all. What are you doing? Drink it all. This is what we call Moving the line. That is what we call the most (laughs) embarrassing video to have been paid for by taxpayers to allegedly teach about consent. But instead, Mm -hmm. I thought, am I in 1982? Am I? I couldn't get through it. No. And also. But everything about it is wrong. Even just the voice picker. I know you're going to tell us about some of the messaging, but even the sound of it is wrong. $3.7 $3.7 million I spent on this. And now, just just to keep people up to date, if you're not across it already, not all of them, but some of those resources, including that particular ad, has been now withdrawn. So they put on the, the Federal Education Department 
commissioned them. They, you know, hired an agency to develop the materials, put them on their website so that schools could use the resources as they educated their students about consent. Obviously, we need to be having a serious conversation about enthusiastic consent, and I say that very deliberately Mm. in this country, in this world. Now they've had to withdraw it because of the backlash. And it's not, look, I tweeted, you know, I hadn't seen it and I thought everyone was being extra mean because the internet has a tendency to be very mean. Mm. And then I saw it and I thought they weren't being mean enough. Yeah, <laughs> completely agree. Right? Do you know, this is actually really, really important to get this right. We know it's really important. I, I mean, I've just literally had this idea now, but why not get all the schools to have a competition to come up with a better ad and, you know, teach consent through that process at the same time? I mean, it is so important to get right. And, and teenagers can and do talk about sex and they use the words and they don't need these, you know, these um, pained uh, analogies that we saw in this video. They're doing I mean, this work. You're right, Sarah. They're actually doing it. I know teenage girls in Melbourne high schools today that are developing their own materials about consent. That's what they do. And Mm. they are bang on. They're not, Mm. they are bang on, they're explicit and they are Mm. direct and they Mm. know what consent Mm. is. They know what they want. Yeah, absolutely. And it is critically important. And this discussion that we're having, you know, sparked by the, the initial allegations from Brittany Higgins, but also from the, from the petition from the, about schoolgirls in the eastern suburbs, which just went sort of, you know, went exploded with young women wanting to tell their stories of sexual assault. It's critical. It's critical. Mm. How, Sarah, how does someone sign off on this? How does this keep happening? Oh, I have absolutely no idea. It's just, I mean, anyone with any sort of shred of um, common sense or understanding of this issue surely should have seen that video and just thought it completely missed the mark. And I just, also, I just find it completely flabbergasting. The the woman, the girl in the in the video, is the perpetrator. Yeah, honestly, yeah, I know that's the message. That was weird from the get go. That was weird. Yeah. The whole thing was a disaster. Like maybe let's look at the statistics, people. And it just sort of reeks of people, I don't know, too many people overthinking it or I, I just don't, I, yeah, I don't understand it. Yeah. It's, it's a fail. It's a fail and it's been withdrawn $3.7 million. Mm. I mean, that's a win. It's been withdrawn at least. Yeah. Well, it's taxpayers are to pay for that crap. All right, mm. Sarah, you have been, as usual, smart, funny, uh, not You're an embarrassing kind. milkshake I'm just video. really tired. <laughs> Two babies, <laughs> nailing it at work. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, yeah. you're, you guys are legends. Thanks for having me. See ya. Good luck with those babies, Sarah. Thank you. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. Yeah. The bells are ringing, and that means it's time for our question time. And this week's question comes from Graham, who asks, why do political journalists and politicians have a strange ritual of creating nicknames? Even Malcolm Turnbull does it, referring to Senator Simon Birmingham as Burmo in his book. Uh, So nicknames, why are they used and have they always been such a big deal in (coughs) Parliament House? That's a great question, Graham, and I haven't really thought about it, but I think I think a couple of things. They haven't always been used in public life, but I think more generally over the last couple of decades, the the culture has got a lot more pally, if you like. It's a lot more relaxed. There's a lot more formal, less formality in our parliament than there was perhaps 50 years ago. That's one thing. I mean, Hawkey might have been called Hawkey, I suppose, by a few people. But yeah, I think there are more nicknames allowed now and or, or use now what is that about it's about showing that you're every man perhaps mm-hmm. and i use man 
selectively there mm-hmm. or pointedly there, you know, that you're every man. So you talk about Burmo and what's some of the <laughs> other nicknames. Well, ScoMo is a bit different, I think, because I think ScoMo, Kev, I think it really started with Kevin Joshy. Rudd. And Kevin 07, yeah. and that was the sort of the young social media generation adopting a leader and therefore turning it into their language a bit. And I think that's what happened with ScoMo to some degree, but it also works for Scott Morrison because it does humanise him too. And it's, you know, the younger ge- the younger generation is a great generation to be able to relate to, to capture. If you're a political leader, you want to get them voting early and voting for you early. Um, so I think that's a, a bit of a marketing thing. But I do think it's happened. Maybe it's social media that has revved it up a little as well. Yeah, I think I think that's possible. But I do think it's a broader... I'm trying to think of some of the others now. Yeah. Uh, Swanee? Yeah, there are a few. Albo. Um, Albo is one. Yeah. I think nicknames are part of Australian culture. Do you, PK? Yeah, I do, PK. (laughs) Um, We call you Fran. That's your name, though. Um, (laughs) Keldog. (laughs) Fran is actually your name. Keldog. I just think it's part of our culture. I will um, admit that I get a few texts almost every night telling me it annoys people that politicians call me PK. They're not annoyed generally that people call me that. Like when you call me that, no one gets annoyed. But they don't like the familiarity with politicians. I, I get a bit annoyed by that, I must say. Oh, there you I go. don't like yeah. it either. Um, so what do you think I should do? Oh, I don't know that it's up to you. I think it's an it's an effort by them to be familiar. And when you're in a political situation, if you're in a political interview, often familiarity is not what you're after, right? You want distance, you want separation. Mm-hmm. So I don't really know how you deal with it. I haven't got that far. Yeah. I've just said it annoys me. That's yeah, all. yeah, but it annoys a lot of people and it doesn't annoy other people, right? So it's a mixed, mixed response. Mm. But I think it's... I personally resist using SCOMO and ALBO. Initially, I I sort of fell into the SCOMO usage, but I've stopped it because I I don't think it's good for me and my relationship with the interviewee, which is often a a politician, to have that, you know, familiarity crossed. Yeah. I feel the same way about using the terms, um, although sometimes they might accidentally come out. So if you're ready to go fact check me, yeah, I've probably Oh, yeah, for sure. Me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, But I agree with the concept. When people use it to me, I do think it's about familiarity. It's about sort of softening the sound or the approach or the conversation between us. But I always think I'll just go as just as hard. Like it's not like I hear PK and I feel like hugging them. I just mm. want everyone to know. Like I don't feel warm because someone said PK. It's not it's not that endearing. Let's calm down. Like it's <laughs> I'm not that warmed by the experience that I feel like being nice to them. I mean, don't, All right, don't worry. Patricia, let's yes. move on. Patricia Carvella says, Goodbye now. Thank you for sending your questions, your compliments too, but especially the questions. And you can tweet us using the hashtag the party room or email your questions to the party room at abc.net.au. And you can follow us, The Party Room, on the ABC Listen app or your favourite podcast app. And you can rate and review us there too. Extra points if it's a really, really nice one. Yeah, extra points just because we'll feel warm and fuzzy and why not feel that way. Look, it's time for us to go. We'll be back next week. See you, Fran. See you, Patricia. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.